Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Thank you very much for the invitation. I think this is an important topic that I think crosses science and um, the arts. Um, and in fact, we'll only do something about this, I think, better if we in fact have a broad group of people all believing in it. And it's good to see some familiar faces in the audience, including some of my neighbours, which is really nice. <laughs> anyway, um, this topic is about antibiotic resistance. And I think one of the, this is a good example of how People often look at this just from their own perspective. So doctors just look at it in, in people and water people look at it from their perspective and those in agriculture just look at it from that perspective. And I think this really does go across all the sectors. Unless we look at it, um, it's not going to get fixed. And I might say I'll, I'll present some data about a paper we're publishing that we did in conjunction with the economics department here that I think is yet another different perspective on it that I think needs to be approached. So One Health is actually a term that's being used more frequently because it says, look, you've got to look at the whole total picture. And that's what I will try and present uh, what's the issue. Now, I think, I hope I didn't push this too many times. What is the issue about One Health? Well, basically what this slide is trying to say, there's all these different segments, be it you know, agriculture, be it people, be it hospitals. And what goes around comes around. And I actually think what's very much underappreciated is water. Um, people always say, look, we've got this terrible antibiotic resistance, and I'll try and give you some figures for that. But if you wanted to do one thing to make antibiotic resistance come down overnight, it's not getting a new wonder antibiotic. It's having clean water for everybody, particularly people. And I actually think if animals had clean water, that would help too. But I'll, I'll, I'll give a bias here. I've got a conflict of interest. I'm in the human sector, so I actually do look after people more than animals. But I think it's the total picture we've got to look at. And uh, I think it's really important. Now, in Australia, I think we truly are the lucky country as far as resistance is concerned. And I'll give you maybe some reasons for that. But we've got very low levels of resistance compared to just about everywhere else in the world. And it's not because we're better at using antibiotics, I might say. I think uh, we are about middle of the road or even above average compared to Europe in the amount of antibiotics we use per people. And actually in animals to a large degree, except we've got the advantage of open pasture, a lot of our animals, and they don't get antibiotics. But we are um, got very low levels. And also, when you look at the limited amount of testing they've done in food and food animals, we've got very low levels as well. And I think there's explanations for that that I'll go into later. Now, I put this up because everybody thinks the 1920s were really great, and I guess everybody had a great gay time or until the depression came when it got a bit more depressive. But um, there were also some bad things about the 1920s. Antibiotics really didn't come till the late 30s. There were some sulfonamides in the 30s, but it was really the 40s where we got antibiotics. And this gives you an example of the... Um, if, it's hard to get good data from before antibiotics, but this is from a study from the US that shows the mortality rate with the pneumococcus is the pneumonia germ. And if you had bacteremia, it means it's in your blood. Now, back in, basically, back in the um, 1929 to 1935, pre-antibiotic, 
If you were 70 and you had pneumococcal um, bug in your blood, bacteria, you had a 90% mortality. Now, I might say it's still um, fairly high. Um, it's dropped down to 30 or 40%, which I might say I don't think it's quite that high now, and it's other things as well. But that basically shows antibiotics probably dropped your mortality by 40 or 50%, you know, the effect of the antibiotic. And Staph aureus, golden staph, is another example. In the 1920s and 30s in Boston, if you had staph in your blood, you had an 80% chance of being dead within 30 days. Now, now it's about 20%, so it's not zero, but that drop in mortality is because of antibiotics, because we know when you have resistant bacteria, it's about 30% instead of 20%, uh, relatively speaking. So, to my mind, there's no doubt antibiotics work. I mean, um, the original penicillin, they gave it to people who basically miraculously uh, got better. Um, one of them was a policeman who um, was dying and they had enough staff, that the, enough staff, he had a staph infection, they gave him penicillin and he dramatically got better until they ran out of penicillin. They were actually taking the urine and reconcentrating and then he died of the sepsis. And to some degree, I think that policeman is an example of what happens with antibiotic resistance. When you run out of antibiotic, you, you know, do, do worse. Now, I might say people need to also take this in perspective. As much as I hate to admit it as a practising physician, people did get better without doctors and antibiotics. You know, not everybody died of infections in the 920. Your own immune system, your own defences made a difference. But there were certain conditions where you didn't. If you had meningitis, bacterial meningitis, there was 100% mortality. Uh, so antibiotics are essential for that. And I might say an infection of the heart called endocarditis, that's really got 100% mortality without antibiotics too. Um, and these ones, you can say, well, it wasn't 100%, but I'm not very fussed with a 70 or 80% mortality either. So antibiotics are good. And I, again, just to put it in perspective, um, the worst pandemic death rates we had from disease, at least in the last couple of hundred years, was influenza in 1918, the Spanish flu. Now, as far as I can see, when you look at all the data, people did not die of influenza. They died of a secondary bacterial infections. Um, they got sick, got worse again, it was pneumonia with the staph germ, the pneumococcal germ. Um, I always get slightly irritated as they were quite... They didn't actually know about influenza until the 30s. So they did all these royal commissions because so many people died. And it was obvious that bacterial infections were the vast majority of death. Yet that message seems to have been lost um, in the last decade or so, but it's oh, another issue. But to my mind, that's why we did not see this again afterwards, is because there were antibiotics to kill these common bacteria that were the secondary infections. The flu set you up for it. So not having flu influenza would have been a good idea, but it was the mortality from the bacterial infections. Now, one of the problems we've got now is resistance is rapidly rising. And as examples of that, this is some European data from blood culture isolates. So these are bugs in blood, um, so not good to have. You shouldn't have it there. And you can imagine red is bad and um, yellow is slightly good. And not surprisingly, the lower half of Europe has got much higher resistance rates than Denmark and Sweden, and I'll go into some of the reasons for that. Um, and that's, this was for the um, E. coli for what we call fluoroquinolones, a drug called ciprofloxacin. Um, and this is what we call third-generation cephalosporins. And again, red is bad and green is, you know, we're actually in the green rate in Australia, I might say. We're in these low rates. But that, you know, that's a developed area of the world. And that's reflected in US and Canada as well. If you look at the developing world, it's much worse than that. Um, if you really want to see frightening figures, when you can get the figures from the developing world, which are very difficult to get, they are truly worrying. 
this is uh, an example of 2,671 2, urine isolates from India. Um, and the bottom line about this is, for practical purposes, half of these are untreatable. Now, these are common urinary tract infections. Um, there is a drug called meropenem, which is really literally our last resort antibiotic, and there was a 10% resistance rate, which we, we you know, don't see anything like that here. It's 0.1%. You know, um, but they, it's often difficult to detect, so it truly is probably 20%. But the other reality is that's an intravenous antibiotic. So unless you've got money and get to a hospital, you are not going to get treated. So the majority of people, there is no effective antibiotics for very common infections. And E. coli is the commonest cause of serious bloodstream infections in the world. It's probably twice as common as golden staph, which is the next one, at causing life-threatening bloodstream infection. So this is not a rare issue we're talking about. And we see this when people come back after visiting India or living there, and they have these really resistant bugs. Um, well, we probably see it the other way. We see people with really resistant bugs, and we say, have they travelled? And usually the doctor you ring says, oh, no. And then you go and talk to the patient, oh, yeah, I was in China or in <laughs> Vietnam. And you particularly saw it with people having, or it wasn't people, it was actually only men having prostate biopsies. Women tend not to have those. Um, and you'd see these people with these bloodstream infections, um, that were multi-resistant and invariably they've been in these countries in the last year. And what happens is you get them through your mouth, they stay in your bowel and mostly with time they disappear. But then if you're run over by a truck or your gallbladder plays up or somebody sticks a needle through your rectum into your prostate, you get an infection in your blood and, off, and particularly if you're using antibiotics as what we call preventive or prophylaxis, it actually, if you give it at the wrong time it selects out the resistant one so you're more likely to get it. So that's where we see it. And then it can cross-infect in hospital or to other people. So this isn't, you know, um, this is real data that I believe that, but it's difficult to find it from developing countries. But the reality is they have resistance rates two, three, ten times higher than what we see here in, an, in, in the developed world. And I guess the worst case scenario is that you've got something you really can't treat. And this was a big deal in The Lancet and the news about two years ago. And this group um, that uh, was uh, Tim Walsh was one of the co-authors, but a number of people from India, they basically sampled um, um, rivers and places in India and Pakistan. And basically they found these resistant E. coli bugs everywhere, including in the chlorinated New Delhi water supply. But also more worrying, the gene that encoded for this, which was the, called the New Delhi metallobetalactamase, but what that meant, it broke down all beta-lactams, including meropenem, was transferable to lots of other organisms, um, including cholera, uh, for instance. Now, uh, so there were, this was a genetic um, or gene that encoded for resistance that might have been in E. coli, but probably in waterways was spreading to huge amounts of other bacteria. And we, before this, reported one of the first cases, uh, well, the first case in Australia, but it was a different organism called Providentia, which is in the same family as E. coli of somebody who'd gone to India for plastic surgery, which went wrong. He, had an, he, he basically came back very brain damaged because he was anoxic. But when he came back, he had this organism that was literally resistant to every antibiotic we could think of, including any experimental drugs. It was completely non-treatable. Um, now, luckily, he didn't get a serious infection with that. But they're very common also in the health centres in developing countries, which is why I think it's not a good idea to send people with health insurance to developing countries to have uh, um, surgery, which is, you know, again, to save money, one of the things that are being promoted is sort of short-term gain, long-term pain. But we, it is a very, you know, Australia is 
fortunate. We have much lower levels of resistance and hospitals in the developing world have lots of resistance. When the Bali bombings were coming on, the people that came back to Australia, three quarters of them were, were um, basically colonised with very resistant bacteria. So this is very common in all developing countries, but the data is difficult to get. But I haven't seen one developing country yet that hasn't had much higher resistance rates. The other thing is you don't actually just have to be in um, you know, the hospitals to get this problem. This is a study we did, I think a couple of years ago, or three, a few years ago, where we took 100 nurses, doctors, medical students and did rectal swabs on them before they went on holidays. Um, otherwise we wouldn't let them go or sign their forms. But anyway, we, we looked how much resistant E. coli they were carrying before they went. And there were a few percent that were carrying an E. coli resistant to either, you know, what we call third generation Kepler fluoroquinolones and genomycin. When they came back, 50% were carrying them. And we followed them up for six months and eventually it disappears. Although some people still had it six, 12 months later. But, you know, not the majority of people acquired. And my, I guess, you know, you do research that um, backs up what you thought before or something. But in my mind, this doesn't answer whether you got it from food or water, but these were people who were just travelling. So they weren't going to hospitals or anything. Um, and whether they got it from other people, I personally believe they most likely get it through food and water. That doesn't tell you whether it's animal or human isolates. We just know they're E. coli. But they pick it up. And I think what happens is when you come to a low-prevalence country like Australia, because we have very clean water, and also our foods uh, are like that, and, all, and also the population means eventually the bacteria you are carrying get replaced with whatever the normal population is in your population, which in Australia is a very low resistance uh, rate. So, um, and, and I might say we, we published this and at exactly the same time almost identical figures, you'd think we colluded, from a group in Sweden came out with the same numbers of percentage, which was, you know, we thought was very interesting because we hadn't even seen their paper until it came out. Um, this basic is getting more and more interest, as you can imagine, not only in medical journals, but, you know, everything from science to nature. But, you know, you read the newspapers or, you know, television, you uh, can see this. I guess I'm accused of contributing to that through the media, but I actually think if you don't actually have this media out, in the, this message out in the media, things don't happen. And I think at least there are some progressive things that are happening through government action now in Australia. Um, why is resistance bad? I've touched on this, but basically you have more dead people, you have increased complications, and there's a, a wealth of literature <coughs> that show this. Um, you have additional expenses because you're in hospital getting intravenous instead of oral, or you're in hospital for longer. Um, you have prolonged illness and hospital stays. There was a European study recently that showed if you had a cephalosporin resistant E. coli, you had double the chance of dying, and if you survived, you spent an extra five days in hospital as a hospital inpatient. So there's, and you can show that through MRSAID. So there's a, a, a lot of evidence to show that it's not just an inconvenience. A lot of the newer agents are more toxic than the earlier ones, so there's toxicity. And particularly, you need intravenous therapy rather than oral, and that's got its own complications. Having a bit of plastic sticking in you means it's a portal for other bugs causing bacteremia and septicemia. So all in all, it's not a good idea. And I actually think um, they truly are miracle drugs. I mean, what drugs do we have where we give it to somebody and it cures the problem? I mean, we can treat your blood pressure, but it comes up when you stop the drug. You know, it, they truly are, you know, from my perspective, miracle drugs in that they can cure the problem. Perversely, that's why we don't have new antibiotics. If you're a drug company, who wants to make a drug that cures the problem you don't have to take again after five days? 
I mean, and, and truly, that is the monetary issue, is why we have less antibiotics. And perversely, why they're being so overused, because they're off patent, it is really cheap to make the ones we've got and mass give them to cows, put them on crops, do whatever you like, because that's where you make the short-term money. They're also the only drugs I can think of where we take them and everybody else in society has a side effect in the form of resistance. You know, I, you know what other drug do you take that has a side effect in somebody else? So in, on a society point of view, antibiotics, I think, are different to other drugs. Uh, they're the only drugs that actually cure anything. Well, there might be some others, but there's very few others. And they are drugs that not only have side effects in us, but they have side effects on those around you, um, but society in a broader issue. Um, now, one of the things that surprisingly was controversial and uh, was, you know, how do you, why, what causes resistance? Well, I guess one of the things we believe is the more you use, the more resistance you have. Now, that sort of sounds like common sense, but there's a lot of people that would argue, or were arguing against that. Mainly people, I think, with vested interest to sell more drugs, but that's my cynical view of life. Um, but, um, you know, I think there is now a lot of evidence for this. Um, I also think We've got some antibiotics that have been around, but we've got certain antibiotics that are truly the last line. If you've got resistance to that, nothing else works. So one of the things when I've been involved with WHO for, since 2000, we've actually now got a list of drugs that we call critically important. In other words, there needs to be more restrictions on them than others because if you've got resistance to them, you're really up the creek, so to speak. So that's been a lot of uh, some of the things we've done. This is a study we did with NCEF um, here that got published... Oh, probably 15, 16 years ago, where we actually took 300 children and followed them for about two years. And we, the mothers did a diary of when they got antibiotics and we swabbed their noses looking at the pneumonia germ. And basically the bottom line was the amount of resistance they carried was proportional to the amount of antibiotics they got. I mean, you say, big deal. Is this, but at the time, there wasn't a lot of data to actually... And we could quantify the risk per day of antibiotic. But I thought the good news of this is if you give children antibiotics and they don't get any more antibiotics after six months, their resistance level that they're carrying goes down to the baseline of the population. In other words, resistance doesn't stay up like that. It can come down. It doesn't go down to zero, but it comes down. So this defeatist view that you can't do anything about it, I think, is false. And, and, and basically, I would think if most people just got one course of antibiotic once a year, we would see very low levels of resistance. Um, um, one of the other issues that's very important with resistance, most resistance is in the environment. It's not de novo. It's not you take an antibiotic and you, do, you mutate a new bacteria. It's because low numbers of the bacteria are there with the resistance gene, and we give it a selective advantage and multiply it up from 10 organisms to 10 billion organisms, which then allows it to spread. Now, again, to show that, this is a study we did with the zoology department at ANU, again, quite a few years ago, um, where we said, well, you know, what's the evidence for this? So... Basically, they had about you know, a thousand marsupials where they'd done collected various poo samples on them over the year, and we took those animals and we looked for E. coli and said, well, what's the resistance levels in these, particularly in Australia, where they're out in the middle of nowhere, not even near a farm, and we looked at, and compared that to people. And basically, the left-hand line here is the resistance levels, very low: ampicillin, 2.9 percent, um, chloramphenicol, 0.4 percent, trimethoprim, 0.2 percent and no resistance at all to what we call the critically important ones, the fluoroquinolones, the third-generation cryptosporins. And this is people at the time from urinary tract, and you can see most. And that, you know, you're exposed and whatever. The important thing about this is you notice these numbers are not zero. 
So these are animals who have never been exposed to antibiotics, as far as we know. They haven't got zero resistance. Now, the important thing about that, if you look at penicillin, it comes from a fungus, penicillium. And why does it produce penicillin? It produces penicillin because it wants to get its own turf and kick all the bacteria out. So there's intrinsic resistance in a lot of bacteria to protect themselves from these higher order bacteria and stuff that make our antibiotics. We, most of the antibiotics are from natural fungi and higher bacteria where we've found these compounds. Surprise, surprise, the organism that produces the antibiotic has got its own antidote called a resistance mechanism, which is on a genetic element that can be transferred. So most, and even these ones, they said it'll never happen, a lot of those. So the environmental scientists have pointed out there's all this resistance everywhere, and it's been there for billions of years. All we've done is amplified up what's in the environment naturally and help spread it with our practices and what we do. And what that means is there'll be no antibiotic that there's no resistance to, because there's, you know, the, all of these are usually derived compounds anyway. So to have no resistance is an impossibility. The um, Bayer, who made ciprofloxacin, said, oh, this is a synthetic chemical, we'll never have it. Well, that lasted about six months, I think, that claim. But, you know, but for a natural product, and we tend to want to screen things, everything from insects to fungi to bacteria, invariably because it's out in the environment anyway, even if we modify it with some chemicals, there will be some resistance out there. Um, resistance is bad, um, but, and I guess I'm mainly giving the human focus, but where do foods and fi food animals and foods fit in? Well, there's some interesting cartoons around. This one's interesting. It's from this magazine called Onion, and it said, look, they're really worried about the availability of American children to get antibiotics because they're expensive and they don't have a pharmaceutical benefit scheme. They said, don't worry, just go to McDonald's and you'll get superfloxes through the hamburger in your body, which I thought was funny. Um, somebody did this study. I don't know how they get They looked at um, sampling the air behind a chicken truck, and they found... <laughs> <laughs> they found huge number, relatively huge numbers of resistant bacteria in the air, which obviously come... Uh, and I, this was a quote from um, Time magazine in um, 1950s that said, you know, this penicillins was absolutely terrific. Pfizer, which was, in our industry, this is just absolutely terrific. Like, um, Pfizer has been completely transformed by antibiotics, what it did to the company. But then they said, we're looking for new markets, so giving um, these to food animals is a really good way of actually having a new market. So this is back in the 1950s. So they're saying this is a wonder drug, it's profit, but then they found this new way of using this product in bigger quantities. So again, I make the point is I've been concentrating on people and all the effect, in here, but this is not isolated to people. What happens in one sector of the environment, economy or whatever, affects others. How much is, you can argue, but the argument previously was what we do in food animals is absolutely irrelevant to um, people because they're different bacteria they don't cross. Well, if you believe that, no humans would have Salmonella or Campylobacter, so I think that's already... But the, the really worrying wor bug that worries me more than anything else is E. coli because it's regarded as a commensal bacteria, and while there are different strains, it's the commonest um, bug in people, and I think a large proportion comes to us via the food chain, and I'll try and give you some examples. I mean, I've written on this in journals and others have. E. coli, I think, is truly the hidden sleeper in all of this. Um, we use it to look at water quality and all the rest, and what has been forgotten is the resistance elements or genetic elements it carries. Now, uh, this is an interesting study that was done by somebody called Corpay from France, uh, and it was in the New England Journal in the late 80s. And he was interested, I think, in the environment causing bowel cancer, but 
what he did, he took 20 medical students, I guess you had to volunteer or you failed the exam, but anyway, he um, basically sampled their faeces every day for 20 days, which is the first half of this graph. And what that actually shows is the number of E. coli, which very interesting per gram of faeces, I think, which varied markedly from, you know, log 5 to log 8. So, you, can, you know, it was high, but it wasn't constant, which I thought was surprising. What the grey is, is the percentage of them that are tetracycline resistant. Now, what he did at day 21, they all, ought, all had to eat autoclave food for the next 21 days. And what I think is interesting about that is as soon as they did that, the E. coli count doesn't go to zero, but it drops by a couple of logs, you know, a hundredfold. But the resistant bacteria disappeared within a day. Well, not completely, but went to very low numbers. Now, that again doesn't tell you whether those resistant bacteria were human contamination of the foods or animal. But to me, what it says is we have a massive turnover of uh, E. coli in our bowel each day. And a lot of that is to do what comes through the mouth via food. Um, and, you know, and, and nobody, and, you know, our own travel studies, I think, suggest that too. Um, there was another study done in the US by James Johnson, who does collaboration with, in fact, us, but also the zoology department here. He's probably the world's E. coli expert, but he did a study in the US where they tried to um, look at what are people carrying. And the interesting finding of, you know, their, that study was that you have resistant and sensitive bacteria in your bowel. And what's interesting is the resistant bacteria we carry, at least, or the people in Wisconsin carry, were much more similar to poultry isolates than they were to human isolates. So again, it implies, uh, and poultry seems to be worse than other animals, actually, for what comes over to us. So it implies very much that uh, what you get is coming through the diet uh, with the resistant bacteria, what you carry in a bowel and poultry. This is a study I did with some colleagues in, um, in um, Europe and we looked at a whole lot of cu countries and the resistance they had in their bloodstream isolates and we looked at four antibiotics. And the bottom line is there wasn't actually a very good correlation if you looked at different countries with how much antibiotic was used. There was some, I think two out of four. Four out of four antibiotics, the best correlation was what you saw in people in their blood was very similar to what you saw in poultry in that country, the isolates, um, compared to the antibiotic usage documented in people or compared to actually pigs and cattle. Now, that's indirect evidence, but it suggests if you try and do this correlation against countries, there is at least a correlation with the worst type of infection you get in people for the resistance, which is blood culture isolates. Um, this, you know, I and others have been involved in getting, I think we're up to our fifth edition, um, a classification of antibiotics based on their priority in, in humans from a resistance perspective. And the point of this was to say there are certain ones we think should not be used in food animals at all, uh, like, like, well, fluoroquinone is one, but like the carbapen and meropenin group, and try and get a ranking because this does have an effect with regulators as to what they let in the country, and particularly for new antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've done that, and I think it's been moderately successful in trying to control, at least in developed countries, and I think even in some developing countries like China and India, what is at least permissible to use in food animals. Now, what are we, if I'm worried about food, what are we most concerned about? First of all, there are certain bacteria I think have nothing to do with food, uh, and that's the pneumonia germ, the gonococcus germ, and the meningococcus germ. 
There are some where almost in a country like Australia with a good water supply, it's almost entirely comes from food. And examples of that are the non-typhoid salmonella, the common salmonella poisoning, and also Campylobacter. And essentially the resistance you see is a reflection of what's happened in food animals. There is a number where I actually think there's a lot that comes through food and food animals, and that's E. coli, Enterococcus, and another bug called C. difficile, where we just don't have the data. But my view is it's more than I thought 10 years ago, and I think it's more than most people think. And there's a new problem. I used to think Staph aureus or Golden Staph had nothing to do with food animals, but that's being proved to be wrong too. And so at least with pigs, there's a good example, and probably with chickens, you can get Staph from them that can affect people, and one of the MRSA strains. It's still a small percentage of the total problem. But this is where you get in this argument with agriculture. They say, well, where's the evidence? And I think you've got to get specific. There's some bacteria that are much more to do with it than others, and there's some that we shouldn't. So if you concentrate on the pneumonia germ and even Staph aureus, yes, you'll say, well, unless there's some much more complicated leak, that's got not much to do with it. But there's certain bacteria, and they're very common bacteria in people that I think has a lot to do with what happens in food animals and, um, things, and um, the resistance we see. Now, this is another um, thing that's been very controversial. And this is this group of drugs called fluoroquinolone. The animal drug is called enrofloxacin. The human one is ciprofloxacin. And the argument is, what are you worried about the different drugs? Well, when you give enrofloxacin to chickens and pigs, it gets converted to, fluoro to ciprofloxacin in the body. So we're actually talking the same drug, really. It's just a different form. But there was a big debate in the late 90s as whether this should be released in, in food animals. And the reason, well, the mid-90s, and the reason is we had no new antibiotic for about 20 years, and he was an agent that was very effective um, and also... Um, um, very effective, I hope it's not my battery. Um, very effective and could be given orally. So there was a strong argument we shouldn't be using food animals. Um, the bottom line of that is that um, the medical lobbies lost that argument. Um, the only country in the world where fluoroquinolones were never approved for food animals was Australia. Um, if I ever did anything for public health, I will take some credit for that. And while there were a number of people involved, given the Bayer was personally going to sue me, I found out later, I think they probably hold me responsible, so I'll live with that. But, <laughs> well, I actually do think it's... And I'll show you some data where I think it actually has made a difference. To show you how, in Australia, we still, despite using this in people for 30 years, have very low levels of resistance, 2 or 3%. That compares with Europe, where you saw those slides, 50%. And in, in places like India and China, it's 80 90%. Um, we also have no resistance in food samples, where they've looked at them, although there's limited testing, but many hundreds. And very low levels in food animals. There is another drug called nalodixic acid, where there is some, because it's an intrinsic low-level resistance that we amplify up with the drug. And it stayed that way. And I might say the other good news is our industry doesn't seem to have fallen apart by not having this one particular antibiotic. So that was the other thing that's put up. Just to give you an example, in Spain, um, children... Uh, in chickens, there was 90% resistance. And in children, 22% of the E. coli carried by children is ciprofloxacin resistant. Now, the significance of that, you don't give ciprofloxacin to children because it damages their joints. So the only way children should be able to pick it up is from other people that are around adults or via water or food. So there is a lot of carriage of these resistant bacteria by people who, or children who do not get it. Um, now, this is a, 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 um, a study we got published a couple of years ago. 
the advantage of Australia is we've got a clean water supply. Because of agriculture, we've got good quarantine, which means no fresh meats get imported into Australia. We import chicken in cans, which means it's cooked, and ham, if it comes in, is cooked. In other words, most of the bacteria should be dead. And it's the same for um, cattle. We have very little cattle meat imported. So basically in Australia, in my view, you, can, you should not be able to pick these up through our water or our foods. We also have a, a pharmaceutical benefits scheme where we have restrictions on using this because you've got to ring up, get permission if you're at the doctor and have an authority script that limits how much you give, although companies have found ways around that by giving shorter courses. Anyway, the bottom line of that, and we don't give it to food animals, okay? The bottom line of it, Australia is the red dot. We have the lowest resistance in E. coli in the world, or at least from developed countries where there's data. And interestingly, the, the x-axis there is the amount of that drug used per thousand population days. So it's a, a easy. So yes, we've got lower use compared to everybody to the right there. But if you look at the people above us, like Norway, Finland, Finland in particular uses half the amount of fluoroquinolones we use in people, yet has three times higher resistance rates. And the same for the United Kingdom. You know, they've got resistance rates of about 15% while we have 3%. So it is not just what happens in people. There are other factors. Now, I believe it's food and water. Well, probably these countries, not so much water, but food, um, which is a matter of ongoing international debate, I might argue. Um, there is another drug I really worry about, is third-generation cephalosporin, which is used in Australia. It's called keftiofuel. It's the same as the drug we use called keftriaxone. Now, the problem with this is for a whole lot of reasons they give it to... They used to give it to chickens. They, it's not done in Australia, um, but we do give it to cows in cattle feedlots. We don't use a lot of it compared to the US, but um, my view is we're putting ourselves at risk if we do this, because I don't think it's an essential drug. There are other alternatives. Um, I might say I was asked to talk to the, the Cattle Feedlots Association of the Gold Coast last October. I was actually expecting to get maybe lynched. Um, because I was on one side of the debate. But in fact, it was a surprisingly productive meeting. Who, the, the marketing and sales guys get this. They, they realise this is a marketing opportunity for Australia. I think it's a safety issue, but I think it's also a marketing opportunity. As I pointed out to them, we have the greenest meat in the world. They didn't quite like that. But um, <laughs> relatively speaking, if you look at this from an antibiotic resistance viewpoint, Australia has, because we don't export our chickens, we only export principally beef, we mainly, we, our beef is mainly free range or if it goes into cattle feedlot, it's for a short period of time. If we do it this properly, we'll have, in my view, a competitive advantage as a marketing advantage. And my view is if I'm going to change behaviour, I've got to talk money, so I'm trying that approach. Yeah, public health is important, but it has actually already been an issue. Japan, for instance, knocked back a whole lot of um, poultry products from Thailand in the past because it had this VRE or vancomycin-resistant enterococcus in it. And the Europeans are thinking about, you know, so this, in my view, will become a trade issue and we're better off being ahead of the game, which I think we can easily do in Australia. What was interesting, I was in Washington last year and I saw this sign, um, which I took a not a very good photo, but it said, um, responsibly raised, shamelessly enjoyed. But it's a, a, a group called... Uh, uh, can, can, Chipotle. Chipotle. Yeah, Chipotle, who actually make this point the food they sell in their restaurants, they actually a whole lot of other things, but no antibiotics are used in their production. Now, I'm not even pushing that. I actually think, well, some antibiotics you may need. These guys have got contracts that say you cannot use antibiotics, and it is a very successful growing food chain. So, um, and McDonald's has done that in part in some of their contracts there. So my other view is governments are hopeless at this stuff. 
the people who make the difference in Australia are Coles and Woolworths because they sign the contracts and you will do this or you won't, and, and because that's exactly what's happening. So to my view, to really make a difference in here, it's the marketing people. Um, if you like, it's the arts faculties I need to make a difference here rather than the science faculties. Um, and this is another example. This is uh, uh, the third biggest poultry producer in the US. They made a big announcement last year that they've gone antibiotic free. Now, this one company produces more chickens than Australia does in a year. Uh, in the US, they produce 8 billion chickens a year. And you can imagine if uh, a quarter of them in one survey that was uh, received third generation cephalosporins, you know, and they used to put fluoroquinolones in their water. So this is huge numbers of animals exposed to these antibiotics. In my view, needlessly most of the time, because the benefit from them, if you try and get objective, where's the evidence compared to placebo? There isn't either no data or when they do it, it actually is of marginal benefit. Uh, when I looked at growth promoters, my view is at the most you get a 1% or 2% growth benefit from it. Well, no, actually, you don't get a growth benefit. All the benefit from growth is in genetics. Um, you don't actually have less animals dying. In fact, uh, the Danish data suggests when they took the antibiotics out, they had slightly less deaths in the animals. The one factor that antibiotics do seem to make a difference is what they call their food conversion. In other words, if you give two kilograms of grain to a chicken, you get a one kilogram chicken. That's called a two to one. It probably makes a one or two percent difference to that. But at the end of the day, and, and this stuff can be expensive. Um, so the, the one advantage of putting antibiotics from an economic point of view, you may spend one or two percent less on your feed bill. But that, you've got to offset that against the cost of the antibiotic, plus the fact that you're going to get resistance and that may give you a marketing problem. So my view is, if you objectively look at, look at it, in countries that look after animals reasonably well, there's hardly any benefit. If you're in a country that has poor animal husbandry, which is when the original studies were done in the 50s, not very good studies, but then there may have been a 5% or 10% advantage of using antibiotics. But as soon as you improve animal welfare, and it, it makes a marginal difference in the economics, as far as I can see, trying to be objective about this. Because my always view was, well, if I want this and it's going to cost the Australian economy $10 billion, I've got Buckley's of winning this. But when you look at the figures, the, the numbers aren't there, you know, and you try and do it, at least from my view, in an economical... And, an economics point of view. Um, One Health, I think, has got more interest. I put this in because I guess hepatitis A and berries are in the news at the moment. And I've, I actually worry about importing food, which we don't test. And I've been worried about superbugs. But this, I think, is just an example. I mean, when you hear or read what probably happens with these berries, they're in a, a big production place in China where I presume they use water out of the river to wash the things, and guess what that has got in it? Human waste, animal waste, superbugs. Hepatitis A is only a, uh, a, a human pathogen. So the fact that you've got hepatitis A means there's been human faecal material in that. Now, the, the standard party line, oh, it's one of the production workers must have had bad hygiene. Oh, yeah. You know, that's usually a cop-out so you don't have to do anything about it. In my view, this is very likely mean the water they use is contaminated because water is such a great vehicle for spreading bugs and drugs, I might say, too. But, um, so I think this is just one other example where we need to look broadly in the One Health because it's not only antibiotic resistance. I think it's a whole lot of other issues that are, are important here. Um, this is a study we did with the economic school. Um, 
Uh, Chandra is the you know, professor in the economic school as well as one of his PhD students. And I might say, the reason we had to do this, I'm not sure I still understand the statistics they did, but I'll take their word for it when they do it's the right statistics. But we, I flippantly said, you know, those, look, at, look at Spain and Greece, how bad their resistance rates are. And I said it to a colleague of mine, um, Sanjaya, and he um, and I said, look, you know, basically the worst their economy, they can't afford to do things properly, and you know that's why they get the resistance. You know, they don't have the proper infrastructure. So he mentioned it to his friend um, in the economic school, and they thought, oh yeah, and they found all these parameters I'd never heard of, like there's corruption index, there's government inefficiency, there's all these um, economic parameters that are well used internationally. That you know, from a medical perspective, I hadn't heard of. Anyway, bottom line is we put this all together. And first of all, we looked at the resistance. The, the basic line, I put up that line, resistance is proportional to use, OK? I, I, I accept that party line. I've even done a, a paper that says it, OK? But there are some discrepancies. It doesn't completely explain the variation between, between countries. But there's a reasonable correlation. But the correlation there is 0.4. You know, it's a, a reasonable correlation, but it's not. Doesn't, the model didn't answer. Then we looked at um, corruption. There is a much better correlation with the resistance seen in Europe with corruption by the World Bank Index than there is with documented antibiotic use. Now, documented is probably important because I think if you've got corruption, there's a lot of undocumented antibiotic use. So it still may be proportionate. But I think this is, in my view, this is this whole One Health concept. If you've got corruption, people turn blind eyes to the water not being treated properly or tested properly. What is done, you know, whole lots of things then both mean you're probably using anti more antibiotics than is recorded, you're using it in ways you're not supposed to use it, uh, and there's probably more spread of these resistant bacteria because all the controls you've got to stop it happening, people take bribes and everything else to stop it happening. So the, the bottom line of this is, again, get clean water for the world, but the other bottom line is if you really want to make a lot of difference for a lot of health impacts, including this, if you can somehow make developing countries less corrupt, the health improves of the population. And this is just one parameter. We're, we're pursuing this in other ways. Somebody pointed out I may never be able to go to Bulgaria, but... Um... <laughs> what about Italy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Italy may be a problem too. Anyway, what is prudent use of antibiotics? Well, in, in the agricultural sector, I actually think that means antibiotics should not be used as growth promoters, which is where 70 or 80% of the use was. I think it also means when you use it for prophylaxis, if we give prophylaxis to people, if you were going to have bowel surgery, for instance, um, or a hip replacement. We give it for short periods of time and we start it immediately before the procedure. When I was an intern, which was quite a few years ago now, people would come in for bowel surgery. They'd come in one or two days before the surgery. They would get antibiotics started and they would continue it for their whole stay. We now know that if you give the first dose of antibiotics immediately before they make the skin incision and only give one or two doses, you get a better result than giving it for 14 days. So you've decreased your antibiotic use by 95% plus, and you get a better result for the patient. So there are a whole, I think that's very, that says a whole lot of things we do because we've always done it, that nobody's actually tested if there are better ways of doing it. And for prophylaxis, it's hard to see how antibiotics continue to work. If you use them, you get resistance. So what might work this year? How can you expect it still to work in three years' time? So you need vaccines, you need to change the feed, you need to change the way the animals are reared so you avoid the infections without having to need routine antibiotics. And then I also think, yes, we need to treat sick animals, but I think there should be certain classes of antibiotics principally reserved for people. My bias is showing again. 
Um, and they should be exceptionally or not used at all in food animals. And that includes ones around the world that are used widely, fluoroquinolones and third-generation cephalosporins. Again, in Australia, we're lucky because that fluoroquinolones are not used at all. And the third-generation cephalosporins, I think because of the producers are worried about bad media, use them in low amounts. Uh, and I think our resistance rates suggest that that policy, um, along with a whole lot of other factors, can make a difference. Now, I think we can get a win-win. I think if we do these things, we have less antibiotics used, and then we have less resistance developing, and then it means we can still have a healthy agricultural economy, but I think have a competitive advantage. And I think what we really need to do is have harmonisation of rules. That, that's actually happening through WTO, of all things. You can actually have whatever public health rules you like in your own country. What you can't do is have different rules for your own producers versus your imports. So we can test imported foods, but what we have to do is test our own food as well. Well, my view is, well, we should have good food produced here too. So, you know, we should be doing the testing of some sort of appropriate um, surveillance so we can actually see that it's low. And my view is, if this all forces China to use better water so they can export their berries and the rest of the population gets the benefit, well, what's the downside of that? Other than we may have to pay 10 cents more for our berries or something. But, you know, to me, this is a means of maybe getting better health, you know, for whole lots of reasons, including for the, the people in those countries. Because at the end, money talks. Is, um, you know, um, agriculture has a lot of influence on what governments do and, and they're very worried about their exports. So if China or India or US think they've got an export problem, they often improve their own internal game. And again, I think this is my last slide, just saying I think this is all about One Health. Um, we need to do a lot in people. We need to have better infection control hygiene. But if you just do that, that won't be enough. A new drug will not solve the problem. We need them. We have to look at how these organisms develop, uh, these resistant organisms develop, how the genetic material develops, environment, water, how we stop it from spreading, both in the wider environment and between people and animals. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.